Before we start today's episode, I've got a number that you can call or text with questions and comments. Hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Swiftin, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 405, this week in space history, well, actually two weeks in space history, for December 16th through December 29th. I'm John Mulnix. We've got two weeks of space history to cover in this episode, so I'm going to get right to the highlights. On December 16th, 1965, Pioneer 6 launched. This probe studied interplanetary space, and it helped provide information on solar weather. According to NASA, quote, along with Pioneers 7, 8, and 9, the spacecraft formed a ring of solar weather stations spaced along Earth's orbit. Measurements by the four Pioneers were used to predict solar storms for approximately 1,000 primary users, including the Federal Aviation Administration, commercial airlines, power companies, communications companies, military organizations, and entities involved in surveying, navigation, and electronic prospecting. That's quite the list of users and an incredible legacy for these spacecraft. There was brief contact made with Pioneer 6 in the year 2000, which is a remarkable feat for a spacecraft that was 35 years old at the time. On December 17, 1903, two brothers accomplished something that humans had dreamt about since antiquity. They took flight. Orville and Wilbur Wright owned a bicycle shop in Dayton, Ohio, and it was there that the brothers began to experiment with gliders and airplanes. They performed numerous glider tests that led up to the first powered, controlled flight, which happened on December 17, 1903. The Wright Flyer is a unique-looking aircraft with two handmade propellers, and it was a biplane design. It also featured a custom-made aluminum engine, which was extremely rare at the time. Still, by today's standards, it was a remarkably primitive aircraft. In 1899, Wilbur sat down to pen a handwritten letter to the Smithsonian Institution for information related to flight, and a short time later, a list of books and pamphlets arrived in Ohio where the Wright brothers eagerly studied them. Designing a wing that could produce enough lift to carry significant payload meant that the brothers had to find a way to do lots of tests to determine the best wing shape. Their answer was to use a wind tunnel, and while they weren't the first to use such a machine, they did end up producing dozens of wing surfaces constructed out of small pieces of metal. These investigations helped lay the groundwork for their future flights, especially the first powered flight in history. The SCORE, or Signal Communications by Orbiting Relay Equipment, satellite launched on December 18, 1958. Testing satellite communications was essential to the United States national security during the Cold War, and there was another benefit to this test as well. 
President Eisenhower recorded a Christmas message that was replayed from the satellite as it orbited Earth until its batteries ran out. On December 21, 2015, SpaceX landed an orbital-class booster for the first time in history. Usually, the first stages of rockets are expended, and they crash into the ocean, never to be used again. SpaceX has been working on reusing the first stage of their Falcon 9 rocket to fly more frequently, and it flies for less money than traditional launch providers. Currently, SpaceX has landed 40 of their first stage Falcon 9 boosters, which is incredible considering the first landing was four years ago. Now let's talk about some Apollo history. We have ignition sequence start. The engines are on. Four, three, two... One, zero. We have commit. We have, we have liftoff. Liftoff at 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have cleared the tower. At 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on December 21st, 1968, Apollo 8 lifted off from Kennedy Space Center. Astronauts Frank Borman, the mission commander, Jim Lovell, the command module pilot, and William Anders, the lunar module pilot, spent six days in space on a mission that included ten orbits of Earth's moon. At liftoff, the Saturn V rocket produced over 7.5 million pounds of thrust, and to this day it is still the most powerful rocket in history. Apollo 8 was the second human flight of the Apollo program, and it was the first mission to launch humans on board the Saturn V rocket. Apollo 8 could have been a very different mission had Apollo 7 not been such a resounding success. Apollo 8 is referred to as a C-prime mission since it was a command and service module evaluation flight, which took place in lunar orbit instead of low Earth orbit. Just hours after launch, while in an Earth parking orbit, the crew was given the go-ahead for the TLI, or Translunar Injection Maneuver, that sent the astronauts onto the moon. Apollo 8, Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Apollo 8, you are go for TLI. Hold it. Roger, stand. We're go for TLI. Last summer, I was able to see the checklist that the crew of Apollo 8 used to perform the TLI maneuver. It was amazing to see that piece of paper in person. While Apollo 8 is incredibly romantic and historically significant, it also had moments that weren't very glamorous. Borman, Lovell, and Anders experienced space sickness to different degrees. Frank Borman was hit the hardest. He had to deal with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, not things you want to deal with when you're in the cramped confines of the command module during a multi-day mission to the moon. Thankfully, his symptoms quieted down, which left the astronauts able to complete the work that they needed to do while in orbit of the moon. As Apollo 8 moved farther away from Earth than any human had ever traveled, an entirely new view of our home planet became visible to the astronauts. We'll talk more about this incredible view here in a little bit. Now, it's time for some serious speed. On December 22, 1964, the SR-71 Blackbird flew for the first time. The Blackbird remains the fastest and highest-flying production 
piloted aircraft in history. It was designed to fly fast and high enough to avoid Soviet missile defenses during the Cold War. The Blackbird was designed to cruise at Mach 3.2, which translates to over 2,200 miles per hour, at an altitude of 85,000 feet. The design of the Blackbird is breathtaking. It's based on the design of the A-12, which was a smaller and lighter aircraft that's visually similar to the Blackbird. The SR-71 had an exceptionally small radar cross-section, and it showed up smaller than a human, but bigger than a bird on Soviet radar, according to Lockheed Martin. Extreme speed, high altitude, and a small radar cross-section meant that the Blackbird could fly over any spot on Earth performing essential reconnaissance missions. On its retirement flight, the SR-71 made the trip from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., coast-to-coast here in the United States, in 67 minutes. For comparison, that same trip in a commercial aircraft takes around five hours. I don't know about you, but I will definitely take the Blackbird. Since we're on an aerospace kick here, let's talk about the HL-10 lifting body. The HL-10 flew for the first time on December 22, 1966. Lifting bodies were flown by NASA from the mid-1960s to the mid-70s as part of research into creating a vehicle that could generate lift without conventional wings. These lifting body aircraft couldn't take off on their own. They were carried aloft on a modified B-52 bomber and were released at about 45,000 feet in altitude. Some of the tests of these lifting bodies would fly unpowered, and others were powered and used the XLR-11 rocket engine for their powered portion of flight. This was the same engine that was used in the Bell X-1A and B, and it provided around 100 seconds of thrust. The HL-10 flew 37 times over its lifetime. In 1970, it reached a top speed of Mach 1.86, and a few days after that fastest flight, it reached a maximum altitude of 90,030 feet with famed NASA test pilot Bill Dana at the controls. The concept of lifting bodies was conceived by Dr. Alfred J. Agers Jr. in the 1950s while he was at the NACA Ames Aeronautical Laboratory, now the NASA Ames Research Center. The HL-10 and other lifting bodies never went into space, but they were an important part of the legacy that formed the foundation for the Space Shuttle and more recently the X-37 Orbital Test Vehicle and the Sierra Nevada Dream Chaser cargo spacecraft. On December 24, 1968, the crew of Apollo 8 spent Christmas Eve in orbit around Earth's moon. We've got it. Uh, we've got it. Apollo uh, 8 now in, in lunar orbit. Uh, there's a cheer in the, this room. Uh, this is Apollo Control Houston, uh, switching now to the voice of Jim Lovell. Go ahead, uh, Houston, Apollo 8. Very complete. Our orbit is 160.9 by 60.5. 169.15, During their 10 orbits of the moon on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, the crew of Apollo 8 took photographs of the near and far side of the lunar surface. They also captured one of the most incredible images of our home. The famous Earthrise photo was not planned, but thankfully the astronauts had a color camera nearby and were able to snap this iconic photo. On Christmas Eve 1968, the crew took part in a TV broadcast. 
While the footage is grainy and it's difficult to make out the details of the moon, the visuals take a backseat to what Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders read during this broadcast. Frank Borman recalled in an interview that the instructions from NASA for this broadcast were to, quote, do something appropriate. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth, and the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. <laughs> God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. I think that reading from Genesis was a beautiful choice. Viewing our home planet from space and from that far away is something I'd imagined to be an utterly profound experience. The crew of Apollo 8 were the first astronauts to spend time while in space during Christmas Day. On Christmas Day, they performed the trans-Earth injection burn that started them back on their journey to Earth. Had this critical maneuver failed, Apollo 8 would have never been able to break lunar orbit. After Apollo 8, the next crew to spend Christmas in space were the astronauts of Skylab 4. Gerald Carr, William Pogue, and Edward Gibson celebrated the holiday by fashioning a Christmas tree made out of food cans. Their Christmas tree pretty much looked like a Festivus pole that added metal tuna cans as branches. It also kind of looks like a space version of the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Be sure to check out the show notes for a picture of this unique piece of space history. In 1999, the crew of STS-103 spent Christmas Day in space during their Hubble Space Telescope servicing mission. New gyroscopes, an upgraded 486-based computer system, and a new solid-state recorder with higher capacity were installed on the telescope. I remember my family's first computer used a 386 processor with Windows 3.1, if that gives you an idea of how powerful Hubble's computer was. 
After upgrading and servicing the telescope, it was released on Christmas Day in 1999. The crew of Discovery sent season's greetings back to Earth on that Christmas Day. Quote, the familiar Christmas story reminds us that for millennia, people of many faiths and cultures have looked to the skies and studied the stars and planets in their search for a deeper understanding of life and for greater wisdom. Mission Commander Curtis L. Brown continued, quote, We, the Discovery crew, and this mission to the Hubble Space Telescope are very proud to be part of this ongoing search beyond ourselves. We hope and trust that the lessons the universe has to teach us will speak to the yearning that we know is in human hearts everywhere. The yearning for peace on earth, goodwill among the human family. As we stand at the threshold of a new millennium, we send you all our greetings. Now that the International Space Station has been in service, we've had quite a few Christmases in space. Be sure to check out the show notes for pictures that astronauts and cosmonauts have shared over the past couple decades. On the morning of December 27, 1968, Apollo 8 splashed down in the Pacific Ocean about 1,000 miles south southwest of Hawaii. The splashdown and recovery of Apollo 8 was conducted by the USS Yorktown, and it marked the end of the first mission to send humans into deep space. On December 28, 1973, the crew of Skylab 4 did not mutiny. The strike or mutiny has been disputed by numerous authors and the astronauts themselves. I was hoping to do a longer piece on the so-called mutiny, but my schedule has gotten the best of me over the past two months. I do have it on the docket, and I want to get to this as soon as I can. I just don't know exactly how long it will be until I can get to the supposed mutiny. Rest assured, it will happen soon. That's it for this week. I'll be having a new episode come out here very soon. We'll be covering December 30th through January 5th. I do have a call-in number if you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment. Just dial 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'm looking forward to sharing the questions that you may have with all of the listeners. As always, the links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a review. Reviews in Apple Podcasts help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure it reaches as many people as possible. Until next time, I'm John Lulix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.